Chicago-born Jeffrey Deaver knew he was bound for a career as an author, but he had a few stops to make along the way. He worked as a journalist and an attorney, with a gig as a folk singer thrown in for good measure before settling into his true vocation. He penned his first novel on the long commute to and from work on Wall Street. Manhattan Is My Beat was published in 1988, kicking off a career that includes 29 novels and five series to date. His career kicked into high gear with The Bone Collector, featuring quadriplegic detective and forensic specialist Lincoln Rhyme, which was adapted for screen with Denzel Washington in the lead role. The novel also spawned the current NBC series, Lincoln Rhyme, The Hunt for the Bone Collector. Two other novels, A Maiden's Grave and The Devil's Teardrop, have also been adapted for television. In 2019, Deaver introduced reward seeker Coulter Shaw in The Never Game, which Publishers Weekly hailed as a superb, twisty suspense, and the AP raved that Deaver is a genius of manipulation and deception. Now, just days after the ending of The Never Game, Shaw is back, trading the concrete and glass of Silicon Valley for the wilds of Washington State, where a dangerous secret awaits among a mysterious sect who want to keep their secrets buried. Deaver's fans will hope the goodbye man is not Coulter Shaw's last farewell. Hey everybody, this is Jeff Deaver, and I'm doing a shout out here for Crew Reviews. Watch them, love them. Doesn't get any better than this. Boys, want to thank uh, Jeffrey Deaver for coming on the show. Welcome to the Crew Reviews. Hey, Jeff. hey. Welcome, sir. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for this uh, drink. virtual book tour. Mm-hmm. You introduced readers to reward seeker Coulter Shaw in last year's The Never Game. Now in The Goodbye Man, you've taken him from the uh, Silicon Valley setting and put him into the wilds of Washington State. Can you give our viewers a little bit of taste of what's, what he's in store for? Sure, and I'll back up a little bit if I can. Um, I, I heard once there are two types of stories, two archetypal stories. One is that someone goes on a quest and that would be um, uh, Lord of the Rings, for instance. Or a stranger comes to town. And that, I think of the classic Western, both a book and a movie, Shane, uh, yeah. by, uh, by Jack Schaefer, and in the movie starring Alan Ladd Jr. Um, I always love, well, I like both of them. I'm a big nerd with when it comes to Lord of the Rings. I can actually speak Elvish, but I'm not gonna do that because I'm <laughs> interviewers too much. But I, I, I um, I love most of all the idea of the gunslinger coming to town. Mm. And uh, for your viewers who are not familiar, Shane is in fact a, a gunslinger in the 1800s. He comes to town when a, um, uh, there's a, a war between the good uh, farmers and the bad cattle baron. And so what happens, he sides with the good guys, not surprisingly, wins the day, and sorry for the spoiler, rides off into the sunset. Well, I've always liked that. My, my main character, that your viewers may be familiar with is Lincoln Rhyme from The Bone Collector. Yeah. I'll always write those books. Never gonna kill him off. I'm working on one right now, as a matter of fact. And if I could turn the computer around and show you the screen, which I can't because I'm on the computer, you'd see where the new book, <laughs> we're pretty far along. In. I wanted to do something that was, uh, in a way, the antithesis of Lincoln Rhyme, create a new series. And what is more antithetical uh, to Lincoln Rhyme than somebody who travels all the time because Lincoln being, a, uh, being disabled cannot travel that much. And he, uh, he's an intellect when it comes to uh, evidence, forensics. 
Well, I wanted to do somebody who really wasn't into evidence, therefore was not a policeman. Uh, so what he does is he travels, Coulter Shaw, travels around the, the country in his Winnebago, a la the horse in shame. And what he does is he looks for rewards that people have offered, maybe for an escaped prisoner, for a, um, a suspect, a, a murderer or a kidnapper who's, who's uh, gone on the lam, or in some cases, a, a civilian, a parents offering a reward for a, uh, a missing child. And often the police uh, don't get involved. They think maybe the kid's run off. There's no evidence to foul play. And so what happens is they, um, uh, that he goes into town and gets involved in the, the crime, trying to solve the reward. Okay, trying to win the reward. Okay, the Never Game was about a murder in uh, Silicon Valley, a series of murders. He was uh, involved in that. And the, the day after the Never Game ends, he launches into a new reward investigation in Washington state, tracking down two extremists who have shot up a church, uh, burned a cross in front of it, and then disappeared. And he, uh, he takes off after them. Wow. So, so as you just said, the, the goodbye man, it, it starts shortly after the, uh, the events of the never game. D oh. Did you already have that story in, in mind when you were running the never game? Sure. I'm a, and we, I'm happy to talk about technique, if you like. I'm a, sure. I'm a plotter. The world mm. writing is divided into two camps, uh, plotters and pantsers. Not that easy to say after a couple sips of... of <laughs> <laughs> I think I acquitted myself fairly well there. The we'll plotter, try that again at the end of the show. No, no, no. I'm not, gonna say, no, I'm not even going to say my name at the end. Of the <laughs> well, a, a plotter like myself is an outliner. I spend uh, months outlining the book. The outline for the Goodbye Man was about 140 pages long. And that's wow. before I write a single word of prose. <clears throat> and as opposed to that is the pantser. And that is a uh, going by the seat, writing by the seat of the pants, of course. And uh, it's, it's just a subjective thing. What, what, what are you most comfortable doing? Um, right. Kyle doesn't, doesn't outline. Harlan Coben don't. Uh, Stephen King doesn't. I, I'm just more comfortable doing it. And I do tell my students when I teach, if you're not a, a seasoned writer yet, it's better to plan things out ahead of time. Not to the extent I do, but, but it's, you know, it's good just to have a direction. Know where you're going. Right. And so um, I have the, um, not only the, the book itself plotted out, I plotted The Never Game, I plotted The Goodbye Man. I'm in the middle of writing the third book in the Coulter Shaw series. That outline is done now, but I have an arc of the stories themselves. So that, um, and in fact, the, the next book, Untitled as Yet, the third book in the Coulter Shaw series, will uh, begin uh, eight hours after The Goodbye Man ends. Cool. Uh, because we have to know all this ahead of time. You know, we write for the readers. We have to make sure the reader has a good time with our books. And that means we have to do what like an airplane engineer does. Airplane engineers want the passengers to have a good time. That is, survive. Or <laughs> to the extent you had, you still can get a meal and a drink on an airplane and they give you something other than the peanuts. So put the kitchen in anyway. Right. You know, yeah. the engineers want the, the passengers to have a good time. The pilot wants the passengers to have a good time. I'm the pilot. I'm the engineer. So I want to plan everything out to make sure the story works uh, for them. And so uh, I know the arc of, of that story. And uh, the first three books in the, the Shaw series are going to be a trilogy. And that will end a, it, uh, the, the next book will end on a very um, 
uh, tidy uh, arc that began in the Never Game. I'm hesitating because I don't want to give away. Yeah, too much yeah. Exactly. yeah, exactly. But uh, but from then on, and I'll be writing a alternating a Lincoln Rhyme book and a Colter Shaw book uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, then he's just going to get on his Winnebago horse and ride into town, and there'll be a bunch <laughs> of excitement. Some of the characters from the first three books, uh, but that arc will pretty much be be closed, and new arcs will open up, and uh, he'll be, uh, you know, Alan Ladd Jr. putting on his uh, six gun and riding into town and riding out of town. Nice. I Before I forget, I watched <laughs> I watched the last half of Shane last night. I was flipping through channels and. As is my custom, if it's on, I will watch it. And so, yeah, watch the end of it again. <laughs> what a what a show, young. Yeah. Shane, Shane, come back, come back. Right. Uh, hey, hey, Jeff, as Sean alluded before, uh, there was a stark change in the, in the setting. Uh, was that simply just a function of, of creating a fresh story, or were there setting specific challenges you wanted to throw at your protagonist? I changed, actually, I changed everything in this book. Um, you know, we're, we as authors are up against a lot of competition now that didn't used to be the case. Uh, and I, as someone who thinks Breaking Bad was maybe the best thing I've seen on television, I binged on that. Yeah. May I digress for just a moment? Love it. Absolutely. With some advice, never ever drink two or three glasses of wine while you're watching your favorite show's conclusion, the, the episode that ended Breaking Bad. What does that mean? That means you immediately lose all inhibition and go on uh, eBay and buy a souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if you, you know, you're involved in this business, you may know, but for those of your viewers who don't, to recoup costs, production companies and studios often sell the props uh, that were in the show. Uh, and, and you don't make a lot of money on it, but I understand his Plymouth Aztec, Walter White's Plymouth Aztec sold for $80,000. I mean, you can well, still made them. You could buy a new one for next to nothing. But but uh, people love the show that much. I bought my um, my souvenir was a Los Polos Hermanos uh, batter fried bucket um, that was featured in the vehicle where Mike Ehrmantraut got his ear shot off. Now, if you haven't seen the show, none of this means anything. But I suspect some of your viewers have and will revere me. <laughs> God for owning one of these <laughs> props now. So anyway, what do I mean by this? Uh, there's streaming TV, there's video game, there's Spotify, Pandora, there is music you can listen to from now until uh, the, the year 3000. Uh, that's all fine. I, I participate in all of those things, but I really do believe that a, a novel, well, let's say written, the written word, whether you read it, listen to it, or uh, it's a full form novella or short form short story. It's the most engaging emotional experience we can have with a creative product. And why is that? Because we, as the consumer, as the reader, participate with the, um, with the author. Uh, Breaking Bad, we know what Walter White looks like. We know what uh, Hank, we know what uh, Skyler, I'm watching Ozark right now. We know the Jason Bateman. Oh, yeah, good, I love yeah. that show. Uh -huh. That's great. I just love it. Um, watching uh, Mrs. America, the story about Phyllis Schlafly on uh, Hulu. I think it's FX, but I'm seeing it on Hulu. Well, um, but I sit back and I enjoy it. I'm captivated by it, but I don't really participate in it. But books we participate in, and that's why the takeaway from a book emotionally is that much greater. Well, 
but we're also up against this competition like Minecraft and Angry Birds yeah. and, and music where we just sit back and we have our beer and we don't really have to participate. So what I'm doing with my new approach to writing, I'm calling it, calling it the streaming style of writing to pick up readers who may say, I like to read, but you know, books are so long and you have to think about these words and read them. You have to understand all the words. Mm, it's effort. <laughs> it's an effort, exactly. But the effort is worth it. So what I'm trying to do yeah. is, um, is produce a book that when somebody picks up, they, they're gonna read it very quickly as if they were streaming. So what does that mean stylistically? The books are shorter than my prior books. Uh, I've written 40, about 43 novels, I guess. Um, up until now, they've been fairly long, 100, maybe 115 to 130,000 words. Now my books are going to be about 100,000 words. Their chapters are going to be shorter. The paragraphs are going to be shorter. Yeah. Um, there's more dialogue, um, more action. But by action, I don't mean gunplay. I mean uh, uh, conflict scenes. That could be uh, emotional, uh, romantic scenes. But they're, they're going to be uh, less introspection and less thought and less ponderous dialogue. Is it going to happen? I don't know, but I, I have had some response that people like it. They, they read it quickly. And my, you know, my books, almost all of them take place over the course of about two days or so and have lots of reversals. Uh, you know, the end of an episode of Breaking Bad, there was a big surprise. I end my chapters that way. And then a big surprise ending, followed by another big surprise ending, followed by yet another big surprise ending, because that's, that's kind of my trademark. Well, it sounds like you're following the market pretty strong there. It sounds to me like Spending that's going to work beautifully. It's a business. It's a business. You've published, what, or produced over, sold over, what, 50 million copies worldwide? Yeah, um, about that. <laughs> it's hard to even grasp. But well, you certainly earned your ability to kick back and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Um, have the motivations changed from your early days to continue with the steady pace of releases? or does it really fall back to the simplicity of wanting to just tell a good story? Um, well, it's, um, it's basically that, telling a good story. I, I, okay, I said I wasn't going to talk politics, but I can't resist this. <laughs> Imagine, I get paid to make up things, and I don't live and work in Washington, D.C. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I'm really lucky. I enjoy writing. I... Um, have learned how to craft a very circumscribed type of story. I mean, if I were to write a Game of the Thrones story, I'd be lost. I, I have no idea how to do that. If mm. I were to write a vampire book or a Harry Potter, I'd be lost. But I can write a, a crime book, and I know it's going to find an audience. And I work very, very hard to make people happy. You know, my, my endings tend to be happy endings. Um, I think it's important when you write a... Um, when you write fiction to have a satisfying ending, and it, it could be an, uh, a sad ending. There's, you know, Hamlet, basically Hamlet is reservoir dogs, except they're wearing tights. Right. So there's crime, there's intrigue, there's betrayal, and everybody dies at the end of the play or at the end of the movie. That's both valid. I mean, that's all, that's all wonderful. I kind of prefer happy endings, though. I want my readers to smile and say, oh, I survived that roller coaster. That was just great. But because I got such pleasure out of um, out of reading and going to movies when I was a kid, I I want to pass that along. And I was a nerd. Oh, I was an incredible nerd. 
you know, nowadays, if you're a nerd, it means you've got a billion dollars in stock. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're living large. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And there's, you know, like a wing named after you at, at Stanford or, yeah. or something like that. But no, I was a nerd. Like it was a leave it to beaver nerd. And I said that once at an event. And this, this girl came up to me afterwards and she said, Mr. Deaver, uh, that's wrong. Justin Bieber is not a nerd. Oh, my God. And I had to explain to her that, no, there's a TV show from the 1950s called Leave It to Beaver. And, and it was about a nerdy kid. And she just stared at me with glazed eyes. That's the kind of nerd I was. But I, had, you know, I didn't have any talent for sports. But I did have um, a love of books and, and movies. And I thought, well, I, I'm, I'm not alone even now. And so that's what I want to do. I want to tell stories. My motivation is to do that. And... Uh, get the word out that these things mm -hmm. are pretty fun. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's, it, your output is inspiring and humbling at the same time. I'll say that. Um, and on the leave it to beaver thing, uh, just to let you know, uh, sat sort of a sad news. Um, Eddie Haskell passed away. The actor that played Eddie Haskell passed yeah. away today. Oh no. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I found that out a little bit ago. Yeah. I was, I, you know, it's funny you, you, you mentioned that or curious you mentioned that because I'm uh, my book I'm writing right now not going to give anything away, but there's a character who is um, who puts on a big front uh, to the police and to everyone else, and he looks like such a good guy. And I was uh, thinking of describing him, but we know what, what's really going on. We readers know what's really going on. And thinking of describing him as an Eddie Haskell character, because um, he, he was uh, to, uh, what was her name, June? Uh, uh, yep, June. Her, June. Yeah. Um, he was all very charming. Oh, what a lovely sweater that is, Mrs. Cleaver. And we know what's going going through his mind. He has like evil intentions. Not evil, evil intentions, but uh, he's he's not really the nicest kid in the world. And I thought, you know what? Nobody would get that nowadays. <laughs> Nobody would get that. Yeah. I mean, so, some of my demographic would. It's it's a little bit older, but I have many readers who are under, you know, under sixty, under fifty. So that would would not work but uh, sad news sorry to hear that yeah. yeah i actually use that reference often like when my wife and i are talking about a certain kid that our kids went to school with i, I use oh, sure. the yeah. reference quite a bit um with, let's get back to your culture shaw for a little bit uh you mentioned that he's a reward seeker and you described a little bit of what that entails where the heck did that come from though what inspired you what where did you see that nugget that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, what is his motivation? Is it money? Is it the challenge? Is it helping people? Or is it a stew of all those things? Sure. I, uh, I'm kind of like a sponge. I uh, absorb things. I don't know how to describe it. That I think I can turn into a, a novel or a short story. I have a file in my, uh, in my computer called, not coincidentally, Ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's full of ideas. And... The Colder Shaw uh, series came about because I'd read an article that I found fascinating. The U.S. State Department is offering a, they may no longer, they may have tracked this fellow down, but a terrorist in the Middle East, they were offering $25 million mm -hmm. as a reward for um, uh, information leading to his uh, discovery. You know, what happened to him after that? We can only speculate whether they go to arrest him with a warrant or there was a drone involved, that's the State Department and the CIA's business. I was fascinated that there was that much money. So I did a little research into rewards and found that it is a real uh, phenomenon. Now, it, they're offered by uh, the federal government, by the um, 
by state government, municipalities, and by private individuals as well. And generally, the, the, the bottom line is that the police do not want your arming yourself and going out and tracking down this guy uh, with, a, with an assault rifle. The, the reward is phrased, uh, as I mentioned just a moment ago, for information leading to the arrest of this person. But I thought, well, what if somebody, a Coulter Shaw character, for instance, decided that, well, no, he wanted to strap on a gun or Coulter Shaw is not, he owns weapons, but he's not a big shoot 'em up kind of guy. Yeah. But, but go into the field and use his intellect and his uh, deductive skills to uh, maybe track down the, uh, uh, the bad guy or to find the missing child or the missing uh, older individual Grandpa has wandered away from home, um, or maybe a missing briefcase or a missing objet d'art or something like that. And uh, so I did some research in this. Uh, I probably typed, quote, reward seeker, end quote, into Google, and it came up zero. So I yeah. thought, huh. I'm ahead of the curve. And it, by the way, is not a profession. There are bail enforcement agents. Mm -hmm. And what they do, they kind of track down Different. idiots at... Um, well, and if any of you are, are these idiots I'm talking about, I'm not giving you my address. I don't mean you. <laughs> I mean, somebody's watching the show and saying, hey, honey, he just I'm, I skipped bail and he's calling me an idiot. Um, but, they, you know, they, they don't show up for a warrant and it's a little drug charge or something. And they're stupid enough to stay in their hide in their girlfriend's basement. It's not a big challenge there, which launches me into the second part of your question. Why does he do this? Well, as we learn as the stories go along, uh, Coulter Shaw doesn't really care very much about the, the money. He may have resources from other sources. I don't want to go into that, but he doesn't care about the getting the reward check. And in fact, his business manager, a rather uh, colorful woman named Velma, who with her uh, husband, Teddy, run his, the business side of mm -hmm. Shaw's operation, um, She'll say, well, okay, you're back from the assignment. Where's the, the check? He said, oh, I forgot about it. Well, <laughs> he didn't really forget about it. The people who offered the reward couldn't afford it. So he said, when they have money, they'll, um, they'll send in a, a check. It's like Atticus Finch, if you recall, a mockingbird. Well, he would, uh, he would represent someone or help someone out legally in, in the small uh, rural southern town. And they couldn't pay, but he would find, you know, fresh put up preserves or a fresh um, uh, uh, basket of oranges or something from the, the crop. That's kind of Coulter Shaw. Uh, but more important than the money is that he is uh, the self-described restless man and he needs challenges. And to him, a reward is like a red flag pin in the map saying, there's a problem here that the authorities have not been able to solve, and he is drawn to that challenge. Uh, in that way, he's like Lincoln Rhyme. To each of the men, boredom is the worst crime that could possibly occur to them, uh, the worst sin of all time. And so Shaw is driven physically to go find the challenge. Lincoln Rhyme is driven mentally to go find the challenge. So Jeff, a, a stranger comes to town who helps the police and private citizens alike. As you said, it's a familiar archetype, but you've given it a unique and, and, and compelling spin. 
And during your writing career, I mean, you've written 43 novels or 45. It's a it's a, a number I would aspire to or any of us would aspire to to get to. Um, with that number of original and fresh protagonists, how do you go about ensuring your characters stand out and not only with the, like from works of others, but from your own? Yeah, and, and I'm glad you asked that because it's a segue into something else I want to bring up. Um, and, and I want your your viewers to know, I, my books don't digress the way I do. I kind of jump around. <laughs> That's why I outline, so I, I keep focused. But but it's a very good point. A few years ago, I was listening, I think, to an NPR podcast, uh, and the uh, person speaking, uh, being interviewed was um, a, a neurobiologist, I believe. Uh, I had something to do with the neurosciences. And she said that the part of our brain that emotionally responds to the people we really know, that is our uh, people we're involved with romantically, our family, uh, our coworkers, and also people we're afraid of or that we, we dislike, our enemies, or maybe actual uh, a mugger, for instance, the part of the brain that gives us an emotional kick there is the same part of the brain that does the same with fictional characters. Well, up until I, my reading that, I was a bit cavalier about creating characters. I, um, I focused on the, the protagonist and the villain, um, and even then I gave them a little short shrift occasionally because I wanted my plots. I'm a plot writer. Nobody does 140 pound, 140 pound, 140 page, um, outline 140 pound outline. I might aspire. <laughs> one hell of a one don't do that. Don't. One hell of an outline. Oh my gosh! That, that would be like a David Foster Wallace book, you know. Like, <laughs> but anyway, uh, 140 page outline without caring about the plot. That's that's what's so important to me. Hmm. But um, reading that or listening to that, I thought, you know, I I can't afford to let the characters slip because the best plot in the world is useless. If you don't care about the characters, if you, you don't have that, uh, that electric wire between you, the reader, and the, the character in the novel. So since then, that was about, well, maybe one Lincoln Rhyme and two Coulter Shaw books ago, I have been um, spending much more time on my characters. But again, not writing page after page of narrative text about them, uh, revealing them through dialogue, through action, through what they do, through their physical quirks. And uh, so I um, uh, have been writing what we call it a Bible in the in the business. A Bible is a biography of the character, right. uh, each character. And uh, that goes into the outline too. So some of the outline is not all plot. I mean, it's mm -hmm. most plot, but it does have these uh, biographies of the characters to bring them to life. Um, and in fact, today I was uh, working on a... Um, my new Lincoln Rhyme book that will be out next year, untitled as yet, and dealing with the uh, the villain in the book and giving him um, a quirk after quirk of uh, personality so that uh, I'm not going to say whether he survives the end of the book or not, but I imperil him quite a bit the same way I imperil the heroes. Mm. So they're going to be on the edge of their seat saying, you know what, I don't like this guy. He's a villain. Boy, he's, he's a very interesting villain. And I, I'm going to see if Deaver kills him off in the end. <laughs> you don't make him one-dimensional. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the, the classic example of uh, the, the one-dimensional villain is, um, and, I, you know, 
think of a, a bad made-for-TV movie or a bad thriller. The, 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 the main villain is head of a drug company or a bank or an oil company. Say no more. That's, you don't have to say anything. That, <laughs> that, give them that job and they're the villain. And who's the henchman, the bad guy? They have my hairstyle except ponytail and maybe an earring. And therefore, we know that's the, that's the bad gunman. It's, you know, it's mystery writing uh, light. <laughs> Click, turn that one off. Sorry. <laughs> My unofficial uh, statistical analysis indicates that 99.9% of attorneys are in some shape or form also fiction authors. <laughs> and we've had a number of those on the show. And legal briefs are a whole other art form, truly. Um, mm -hmm. What was it in your legal training that may have had some influence in, in your amazing ability to craft, which is the opposite of what attorneys typically do, is, is entertaining fiction? Well, if you've ever been to court, I do have to say entertaining fiction does sometimes figure in a trial. <laughs> but we'll put that aside for a moment. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a, uh, a good, uh, it's a very good question. I, I went to uh, the University of Missouri Journalism School, and I uh, got a Bachelor of Journalism degree, and uh, I, I did, uh, well, let me back up even a little further. I always wanted to write fiction, ever since I was a little kid. Hmm. I knew I wanted to do that. But I also knew, I had the, the, the foresight to realize that there really were no uh, prodigy authors. I, I know Mozart was you know, composing at four or five, and presumably Jackson Pollock, was spattering paint on canvas at that age, but writers need to need to live life. They, they need to they need input before they can output. And so I knew I was not going to be a writer uh, at an early age, nor did I want to be. I mean, I, I wrote all the time. I knew I would not be a published and a professional author for a, a long time. And I gave it to my twenties. Circumstances made it a little later than that in my thirties, but but still, I had that in mind. And so I, um, uh, you know, I, I, I would look at the, uh, the whole arc of the schematic of, my, of what my career might be, and I found, um, you know, I'm, I like writing. Maybe I'll go to journalism school. That will help me learn how to write, which it did. Uh, you know, I write in a very pedestrian style. I, I'm not speaking of David Foster Wallace, and sadly not with us any longer, but one of the greatest stylists of all time, Annie Prue who wrote The Ship News, oh, yeah. a wonderful book and wonderful, uh, wonderful writer, great stylist. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, a great stylist. Uh, that's not my writing. I, I write very meat and potatoes prose, but, but it gets the idea across, so I'm, I'm yeah. fine with that. But I thought, um, you know, what I'll do is um, go to journalism school, uh, become a, uh, a writer, it'll help me hone my craft of writing, and, you know, teach me interview skills, which will come in helpful when I'm a, a novelist, I hope. And then I, I decided, well, I'll, uh, um, I want to write about something uh, specific, a uh, specific topic. And uh, I, I wanted to get a job with the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post. And it really helps if you have an adjunct degree in addition to your journalism degree. And so my grandfather was a lawyer. So I thought, well, I'll go to law school at night. And then um, I, I can, uh, I'll, I'll apply to the, the Times or the papers as a, a journalist to uh, cover uh, maybe the Supreme Court, like Linda Greenhouse does, or hmm. Moral Eliason on NPR. And, and, and so I um, went to law school, 
and uh, all the time planning to write uh, as a journalist. I did well in law school, which would come as a shock to any one of my <laughs> undergrad professors, uh, because I liked the topic. It, it was it was exciting and fun and a challenge. And right. so, uh, when uh, in your when your grades go up, the um, law firms come to the school and recruit you. And so, one a Wall Street firm uh, said, "Well, Jeff, uh, you know this is kind of an interview process, of course, but to make a long story short, Jeff, they said we'll triple your salary if you come work for us." Wow. I waited probably three or four seconds before saying mm. yes, and then I did. But uh, all the while I was writing, and it, when I was an attorney, I was writing. And what the writing taught me was what I described earlier, the, the organizational skills. Because, you know, whatever you see on, on, on TV, on, on the, the, the wonderful legal shows, um, uh, you know, L.A. Law, uh, Boston Legal, and I'm sure yeah. there are others, um, uh, the Good Wife, I think that was one, wasn't it? Right, it was. Oh yeah, yeah, just love, just love that show. But the reality is, there are rarely surprises either in the courtroom or during a business deal. Everything is planned out ahead of time. Mm. And uh, yeah, there may be a surprise witness, but then you know, an adjournment while the uh, the judge uh, gives the other side the opportunity to examine the witness and so forth. So, so the reality of law is a little bit slower than what happens on the, the shows. But what that taught me was you plan everything out ahead of time, long outlines about the case, long outlines about the business closing that's going to happen. And that is what I incorporate in my uh, writing uh, right now. Oh, okay. Makes sense. S sticking with your career, there was about four years between your second John Pelham novel and the release of the novel that so many people first really jumped up and said, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. The bone collector. Um, what happened in those four years? Did you, did you know you were on the cusp of something kind of transformational for your career or was it just a matter of you were busy with life and it took you longer to write that book? No, um, actually the, um, there were, it, it was kind of a timing thing. I've written a book a year, um, ever since I, I started writing. Wow. Sometimes there are contractual issues, sometimes published okay. issues. So I've never, uh, never flagged in, in doing that. Uh, but there have been times when I have not been uh, published and I have left publishing companies because of that. If I cannot get a publishing company that agrees to publish me once a year, I will not go with them. Uh -huh. uh, collector was typical of, of any of my books. It takes me a year to write, with the exception of Garden of Beasts, my historical thriller set in Berlin in 1936. And... Uh, that took me two years to write, but I was still publishing a book a year at the time. So that, that one I, I started working on while I was writing another, uh, another book. But uh, no, The Bone Collector was, uh, was very typical. I spent eight months uh, researching and outlining the book. And then I um, uh, spent about two months writing it and two months rewriting it. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said there are no great writers, there are only great rewriters. And I firmly believe that each yeah. book of mine is rewritten 40 or 50 times before I send it to my editor. Wow. Actually, before I send it to another human being, because I hire uh, freelance copy editors, well, line <clears throat> editors and copy editors. Yeah. And, for, uh, you know, your viewers who may want a, uh, uh, a course in the, how the process works, uh, the author writes the book, and then there's what's called a developmental edit, and that's when the editor, his or her editor, reads it over and says, well, you know, this is good, but, 
you know, maybe we need another murder here. Or maybe you have too many murders or, or maybe the, the, the guys. Jeff, you can never have too many murders, by the yeah. way. Oh, I, I, well, I, I, I did that. I did that once. And then, you know, I had like four murders in the book. And then what happened was I said, oh, shucks. Well, I didn't say shucks. But you can yeah, <laughs> we'll take that. Well, we can yeah. say, it. oh, shit. Oh, you can say that on here. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. I, now I've got to get the crime scene team in again. I'd already killed three people in that book. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to get the crime scene team in. I've got to come up with all this evidence. And, you know, realistically, with, with um, murder and death, less is more. Uh, you know, when you see these, these, these stupid thrillers where somebody pulls out a machine gun and mows down, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of people, it loses the impact. Yep. The, the more personal the crime, the better it is. So... Um, uh, yeah, so I, uh, uh, anyway, I was working on the, uh, oh, where was I? What was the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it, it was, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it was um, regarding the, the, the space between uh, your, your second John Pelham novel and The Bone Collector. Oh, oh, right. So I was working on, on books the whole time then, and I got to the, uh, I, I was working on The Bone Collector. Oh, I remember what I was saying. So, so the, the uh, backing up to say how the, how the whole process works. So I come up with the idea. And then I write the book, go through many, many rewrites, and I can talk about that in a minute if you like. Then it goes to my editor, and that's the developmental edit, which is the um, uh, where they may talk about the number of murders, or they say, well, you said it in Seattle, and, and somebody just said a book in Seattle. Can you move it to, uh, you know, I don't know, Park City, Utah? Not easily, but it can be done. And then it comes back, and I make those changes. Then it goes off to the line edit, and the line edit is uh, generally the same editor who um, will say things like, well, you happen to use the phrase, I'm picking this at random, is all a lot. And I'll tell you what that means. Uh, it's kind of a Southern convention where somebody will say to another fellow, uh, did you really go to the, um, did you really go to the bank that day? And he said, yeah, I had to pick up some money is all. And it's, it's just kind of a convention you hear. And, he'll say, Jeff, I saw that you use that 32 times in a book and it gets a little wearing. So that's what a line editor does. And he or she will help you like, you know, kind of smooth out the language. But it comes back and you make those changes or you don't. Generally I make them because I respect the editor. Then it goes to the copy editor. And the copy editor is the one who says that, um, well, uh, Jeff, uh, you had your hero uh, drink, uh, you know, three double bullet bourbons. And then, ooh, I don't see any problem with that. My type of guy. <laughs> then pull, then pull out his gun and shoot a bullseye at a hundred yards away. And uh, copy editor would say, "My experience is that I can do that with one glass of bullet bourbon, but three glasses, no, that's not going to happen." <laughs> Things like, and I had a, a scene once where um, in L.A. had to drive from um, uh, Burbank to, let's say, Santa Monica. And they, they, he drove there at like five in the afternoon uh, in, in, in a half hour. Well, if you know anything about L.A., mm, yeah. that ain't going to happen. It may happen yeah. with the lockdown going on, but, but that <laughs> happen then. So that's what copy editors do. And then finally, there's the proofreaders. So, uh, and the proofreaders uh, compare um, the, um, uh, the manuscript against the, uh, each version of the manuscript to make sure that no typos uh, get in. Right. So... That that's a long answer to your, uh, your your question about the process of why I there was a bit of a delay, but what happened when the books got going again? Yeah. Okay. 
But continuing with, with all of that, uh, recently we, we've spoken with several authors whose novels are being adapted for film and television, and some of them have active roles in that adaption process. Your own books have graced both TV and big screen going back to the 90s. Do you see a shift in Hollywood with uh, regard to authors becoming more important in the, in the production of, of, of the films? It's a good question. I hadn't, hadn't really thought about that. I have had no interest in uh, being involved in the uh, production. I, um, um, I, I, I'm very comfortable. I'm in my wheelhouse or comfort zone writing books. I do it by myself. I, I have, you know, the, it, it's a joint effort after the book is done. True. And as I mentioned, the editorial process, but I, I can sit in a dark room uh, and write for eight months. I'm never happier doing that. I, I socialize, of course, I, I see people, but I'm never happier doing that. And a movie, um, a TV series, is a product by committee. And I love film. I love TV. Um, but I, I, it's not my skill set. And uh, if, well, for instance, NBC did the uh, Lincoln Rhyme, The Hunt for the Bone Collector. Right. Yeah. Uh, just finished nine episodes. And we, we hope it'll be picked up again. That's still up in the air. Uh, but, um, uh, and the, the showrunners, uh, Mark B. and Cooley and V.J. Boyd, uh, called me up and we just chatted about the show a little bit unofficially uh, you know I'm I, I'm in the writers guild for a different situation but I wasn't helping them on uh, by contract we just chatted about it and then they went off to do their tv show and I went off to to continue writing on the book and uh, I think Clint Eastwood said a man's got to know his limitations and my limitation is I, I write um, you know acceptable books and short stories but to be involved in a TV crew, I, I don't think I'd be very, very good with that. I heard a, a great story by the, the wonderful writer Don Westlake, who uh, wrote a very prolific writer, mystery writer primarily. Yeah. And uh, he had had some, let's say, less than uh, felicitous movies made out of his books. <laughs> Downright goddamn bad movies <laughs> made of one of his books. Hmm. And a, a reporter came into his office to talk to him about it. And of course the question came up and the interviewer said, well, Mr. Westlake, what do you feel about what the, the movies have done to your books? And he was a, a very larger than life theatrical kind of fellow. And Westlake got this shocked, horrified expression and spun around in his chair and looked up at his bookshelves behind him, which had copies of all of his many books. And he turned around and says, oh, phew, you scared me. The movies haven't done anything to my books. There they are. <laughs> Readers are perceptive enough to know that uh, if a, a, a movie uh, shines, if it, if it does justice to the book, that's not the writers. Uh, no kudos to the writers. That's the director. And if they do a bad job, no, uh, no shame on the, uh, the books themselves. And in fact, some, some movies have um, exceeded the books. True. I think... Um, what's that sorry it's, it's rare but it happens you're right it is rare yeah it does occur it does occur sometimes uh i think the um oh let me see uh what uh, i had an example it's gone right out of my head now but it does <laughs> in rare cases i i am this is probably sacrilege in some quarters but i actually like the movie la confidential i i love the book la confidential but i think the movie's just Oh, more. there's a perfect example. Yeah, Elroy is—he's—he's a, he's a great writer, but he's a right. dense writer, and um, uh, 
uh, I mean, the, the, the novels are dense. He himself is not that dense. Uh, <laughs> but, the, um, but the movie just came together uh, so, so perfectly well. You know, I just, uh, I really thought it was, uh, I thought it was uh, perfect. Oh, the, uh, the one I was thinking of was The English Patient. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, oh well, that, was a, that was a very good movie. Yeah. That was really good. Far better the, the than the book. Was, the novel was sprawling. It was very good. Yeah. But to turn the entire <clears throat> uh, novel into a, a film would have required, like, the, I think it lasted the entire length of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I may be misspeaking now, but it was, a, it was an epic novel. And the, um, uh, the, the film boiled it down and picked the, uh, the good parts. And then, of course, it gave us Elaine in Seinfeld saying, just die, will you just die? Wait a minute, did you just throw, <laughs> throw a Seinfeld, Seinfeld quote? In I love it. Excellent. I, I'll, I'll work Seinfeld. Well, I was actually teaching a course once. I teach, I, I teach my course in writing often. This happened to be at a university. And uh, I was not on tenure. It was a, a I, I boiled it down. It was a one day, uh, I'm sorry, it was a one hour course in the creative writing department at, uh, I think it was uh, Virginia Tech. And my general course is, is four hours, four or five hours. Uh, but this was just for the, the course. And um, I was improvising a bit. And I, I said to the students, um, well, you've heard me me talk about writing now and I'm missing the outline process and my idea of achieving emotional uh, you know, impact with the writing. Uh, what do you think my influences are? And one um, student said, uh, oh, you know, Dashiell Hammond and, and one said, uh, um, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler, another uh, mentioned John Grisham and then some, some crime uh, movies, famous crime movies as well. And then I saw this, this young student and she had a smile on her face. And uh, so I, I, I didn't know if she was gonna get it, hit it right on the head, but she said Seinfeld. And that was the answer I was looking for because um, comedy and thriller writing are, are very similar. They have the same goals. It's all about the unexpected. And um, uh, Seinfeld has four subplots going on simultaneously, each somewhat interrelated because they weave back and forth. And then at the end, there's the big twist uh, that kind of reconciles each one of those. And you may laugh at a, a Seinfeld joke or you may gasp at a, a crime story when all that comes together, but they're really not that dissimilar. <laughs> really good point. I, I Once Upon a Time was a, did a little stand-up comedy and I will say that there's nothing more terrifying than standing on a stage and doing stand-up comedy because you can do the same show one night that you did and, and kill. And the next night, depending on the audience, nothing crickets. And so, that's, so it's, it is terrifying. So it, I, to, for me, it's, it's exactly like a thriller. When I um, do my, uh, my presentations, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, I'm not talking about my course now. I'm talking about a presentation at a conference or a, uh, you know, a keynote speech of some kind. It's, it's comedy. It's all comedy. It's, it's, it's helpful information. Sometimes it's inspiring. Sometimes it's about uh, writing. Uh, generally, it has to do with the creative process. But my goal is, is to make the audience laugh. I, even at book events, I make them laugh. It's not about, um, it's, it's, it's not about um, 
reading from the book, the most you know, dangerous thing an author could possibly do if you want to lose readers. But I will write everything out and I will spend hours and hours, hours, days and days writing a funny routine. I would never in a million years get up on stage cold or, or if I tried to memorize it, my memory isn't the best in the world, never was and even now it's even it's worse. But um, when it works, there's nothing more exhilarating. And when they just plain stare at you, that's it. I'll, I'll tell you a fast, fast story. I was in uh, <laughs> Japan, and um, I, was, I had my presentation prepared. And I, of course, an interpreter. I don't speak any Japanese, <laughs> um, except Domara uh, Gato when they bring me the big Sapporo or Karen. Uh, <laughs> Or, uh, or Sapporo, the big Sapporo, I was referring to the, when I went like this, the, the beer, there's also Sapporo wine, I think, or what, what I, I don't drink that much, but I, it, <laughs> <laughs> you have to explain to us. Any, anyway, no, so no, I'm, we get I'm it. in don't the worry. presentation, <laughs> I'm in the presentation, and here's the audience, 90% Japanese, in a big presentation, my books are, are popular in Japan, so I do my presentation in English, and then I pause when I came to a, a, a funny line. Well, I could see, you know, roughly a third of the audience laugh because um, the uh, English is, 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 is well, well spoken in, in Japan, um, in, in the urban areas at least. And so then I would, the, my interpreter would interpret the joke and another third of the audience would laugh. And the, <laughs> the audience would just stare at me. Because humor does not really translate <laughs> any other language. Two out of three ain't bad is what they say. Right? Yeah, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I could care less. They all bought the book. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's even better. I was going to say Hall of Fame, but no, you're good. Well, Jeff, you, you survived the main portion of the interview. Mm. The main portion of the interview. And Have a drink. This next part might, might be difficult for you because you've given some of the most thoughtful answers I think we've ever had on the show. Um, and, and as we like to say, this last part is your mom always says, think before you speak. Well, this is the part where we say, speak before you think. Mm -hmm. um, I have, my rule is the, uh, the 24 hour rule. If you read something on Facebook or uh, whatever, your friend says something completely stupid about <laughs> it might happen to be an office. I'm, again, I'm not going <laughs> to, the 24 hour rule is, is that if you want to not alienate your friend or <laughs> family member or maybe your dear partner who <laughs> differently than you do about some things just give it 24 hours i don't have that luxury here is that correct no that is correct <laughs> right. oh right. gosh no but no. these these are these are not that deep or, or <laughs> i don't think so so i will start um you have three questions from each from each of us you have been wrongfully accused of murder what fictional attorney do you hire to defend you i would hire the uh, Paul Newman attorney from The Verdict, the movie The Verdict. Great. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Go. Now, uh, some of our listeners may not know this, but um, Jeff is a folk singer slash songwriter. Uh, what, is the, what song lyric are you most proud of writing? I wrote a... Uh, I have more than like 10 seconds to answer this question. Yeah, for sure. Okay, all right, good. Um, I was not a successful, uh, 
I, I don't have a very good voice and I, I, I play guitar, you know, functionally well, but I, I mostly liked writing songs. That was my thing. And mm -hmm. obviously I'm a writer. I like writing songs. I've written hundreds of songs. A few years ago, I'd stopped performing many, many years ago, but like two or three years ago, I wrote a book called XO, as in Hugs and Kisses, about a young woman, a la Taylor Swift, who was stalked by a, uh, a fan. And I thought, well, why don't I haul out those old skills and write an album of country western songs? And mm -hmm. I, um, I hooked up with a, a team in, um, in Nashville, and we, we cut the album. And I didn't sing. We hired a wonderful singer-songwriter named Treva Blomquist who, who performed the songs because it, they were done supposedly in the novel by the, the woman who was my, uh, uh, Kaylee Town, who was my, my hero. And the songs, by the way, have clues uh, within them. No. Uh, so that the readers might be able to figure out what's, what's really going on. But we recorded the album, and it's on Spotify and Pandora. And the song I'm most proud of was called Your Shadow. You know the wonderful song that uh, the police did, Every Breath You Take? Sure. Which done one way is a love song. And done just that minor key is kind of creepy. Creepy, <laughs> very creepy. Exactly. That's exactly what I did. Oh, and uh, can I tell you another story about this album? Do it. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. All your viewers out there can go track down if you like. Um, it was nominated, not uh, one song was nominated for a Hollywood Music Award. And... Um, what oh my god this was just the best thing best thing in the world and then i learned that kanye west was also nominated for that same category <laughs> and i was thinking oh yeah I, i'm gonna go to that i'm gonna go to the award ceremony and let him try to take that award out of my hand <laughs> like taylor swift <laughs> yeah but then i saw him and he did a um he, he did i don't know somehow a shirt off magazine spread and the guy is cut and buff and i've been like here here mr west take <laughs> no problems just don't hurt me sorry what's your uh, sorry what's your <laughs> no, that's great so my, my, my final question is do you have a favorite current songwriter kanye west <laughs> kanye west yeah. Funny you should ask. Um, I, you know, I, I have to tell you, I you, you're gonna you're gonna think lame, 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 but I um, I love music, but I I don't listen to a lot of it now. And if I do listen to it, I um, I tend to go back to the old days, mm -hmm. and um, that brings me to the subject of musicals. And that's going to bring me to answer your question in Lynn Manuel Miranda. Okay. Because, um, I, I cannot, I, I, when I lived in Manhattan for many years, I would go to every weekend, I'd go to the theater if I could, off Broadway, off, off Broadway. And even Broadway is off Broadway, which doesn't make any sense because I don't think there are actually any theaters on Broadway, but we get the idea. Times Square theaters. And I, um, I, I just, um, absolutely love Hamilton. One of the best things I think that like Breaking Bad, I think is the best TV show. Hamilton's yeah. the best musical, at least, you know, subjectively speaking for me. Yeah. And I just uh, absolutely love it. So There's nothing lame about Lynn. Uh, that, that's a ph phenomenal choice. Yeah. Agree. All right. I'm up. Besides you and I, <clears throat> can you name another well-known author from old Mizzou? 
Hmm. Uh, well, okay, I'm going to hedge this one a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to pick, I think John Chancellor went there, journalism mm -hmm. school. Yep. I believe he wrote, uh, you know, the famous, um, no longer with us, I believe. He wrote the, um, uh, I believe he wrote, I don't think it was a biography. I thought, I think it was a book about journalism or about, pol I'm sorry, about politics. Uh, you're going to have somebody go online and check out. And yeah, see to it. check that out. That's my answer. Okay. Uh, James Rollins. James Rollins. Rollins. Yes. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. he go there? Seriously? He did too. Oh, okay. He kind of graduated we, between you and I. We haven't had anybody from Rutgers. Well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> I had, well, a, I had is, a faux pas. talking about literature, Chris. <laughs> I had a faux pas in a book that got caught at the very last minute because I just, for the hell of it, I don't know why. I said, well, okay, somebody was from New Jersey. Uh, okay, they, they went to, they graduated with honors from Rutgers Law School. Hmm. But I guess they couldn't because there isn't one. <laughs> oh. So there, like, there is one. It's, it's in lovely Newark, New Jersey. What, there is a law school? Seriously? Yeah, yeah, it's in a Newark. Rutgers New Law School? Rutgers, my, copy yeah. editor, my copy editor said there wasn't. Uh, you were wrong. Right. I've still got her, her number. Don't worry. I'll take yeah. it. Oh, sorry. 24-hour rule. Okay, I'll, I'm going to be good. <laughs> Listen, no one in New Jersey reads anyway. Don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, you said that. I did not. <laughs> yeah. Friends and family, come at me. <laughs> All right. Since you and I are both from Chicago, mm -hmm. what one word or any word best describes a typical Chicago winter? Um, I, I can use multiple words. Sure. Mm, okay. I think you said word or phrase or word. Well, I'm going to- He didn't whatever. say it. It's your show. Okay. Anyway, it's, it's, a good, it's a good answer. Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's so true. It's true. It's so true. Oh, and that's why I left. All right. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Number three, which novel, yours or someone else's, anyone's, has yet to be made into a feature film, but should be? There is a, oh, are we talking uh, fiction or nonfiction? Let's, let's, let, let's let, open it up to whatever. Yeah. Okay. There's a, a writer friend of mine, John Gilstrap, who is. Um, yep, we know John. Oh, you know John. Okay. He wrote a book called Six Minutes to Freedom which is about uh, the rescue of a, uh, I think it was Delta Force rescue of an operative in uh, Noriega's regime in Panama. That if you read this book, you will sit on the edge of your seat uh, because uh, this, uh, the fellow, I'm not gonna give a name away because I don't have permission to mention his name, but the hmm. subject of the book um, is, you, you, you don't know whether he's gonna survive or not. Uh, there's all kinds of, political shenanigans going on. There's all kinds of military shenanigans going on and it has movie written all over it. So um, John, if you're out there listening to this and I hope you are, and if any producers out there listening to this, Six Minutes to Freedom uh, by John Gilstrap, that will, it'll be an instant bestseller. Think, think Black Hawk Down with a, uh, let's say a happier ending. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I've not, I've not read that. I've one. never, no, I've, I've never, never read, read that. I do remember though that um, I think we blasted Metallica around <laughs> Manuel Noriega's uh, compound. Yeah, <laughs> we were going in to get him. 
So Jeff, you, you mentioned that it, Seinfeld was one of your uh, influences. What's your favorite scene? My, well, I could give scene. What I'm going to do is answer this twice. Sure. Uh, because it, it, it incorporates my favorite scene, but it's the entire episode. The episode known as Pinter, which is um, a reference to um, Harold Pinter, who wrote a play that went backwards. And it's the scene, uh, it's, I'm sorry, it's the episode about the wedding in India that was shot by Larry David and, uh, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld that goes backwards. It starts at the beginning and then works its way back to, I think, maybe a month or a week, whatever it is, earlier. Uh, and it was one of the things that inspired me to write my book, The October List, which is a thriller that goes backwards. Ugh. I think my favorite scene uh, in Seinfeld is where we've been going backwards, remember? And so we see Kramer holding a, um, a white stick. Just That's all it is, a white stick. We don't know what it is. And this is in the beginning of the show, but remember, that's later in time. And right. then we go on, we go on, and we go on, and then we cut to Kramer again, and he, he's holding up the stick, but it's got one of those huge, um, uh, you know, circus lollipops on it. <laughs> <laughs> now we see where it came from. <laughs> what happened to that lollipop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The brilliance of that show is just mind-boggling. It, it really I think I've counted. That's nine questions. Oh, I guess not. <laughs> All right. Continuing with, with television, you are hired to rebrand the TV series Breaking Bad. Your first job, though, is to give it a new title. Mm -hmm. What is it? Um, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's good. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to ask questions about the cast or something like that. About, uh, well, um, uh, okay. Oh, this is not really creative, but, I, you know, because uh, owing to... Uh, some shows we see on now, I'd call it the bad place. The yeah. bad place. Okay, there the you good go. Place. Yep. Well, you know the the good places, which is yeah. Quite <laughs> well, wait, is there a bad place? I don't know. No, no, no. Okay. No. Well, th there should be. And by the way, <laughs> copyright to that and trademark, and I'm an attorney. Done. So you guys, done. you guys wanted to run Listen, with that. I just wrote that down. I wrote TM in small print right next to it. So you're good. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry, TM. You have to register. I was a patent and trademark. You have to register. <laughs> trademark. Anyway, my attorney will be calling. No worries. <laughs> don't ask the Secret Service agent don't, for any help yeah, with trademark. It's, it's only the second time we've had somebody threaten us with their attorney. No, just kidding. <laughs> Today. Second time. Um. And so, uh, although you're drinking uh, a gin tonic right now, Bombay? No, 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 mm -hmm. Bombay Sapphire. Bombay Sapphire, with, fantastic. With um, I did see earlier that you were drinking, not in our interview, but you had some wine. Um, what's the better red wine? Is it in Italy, France, or Napa Valley? Well, I'll, I'll have to just step back, because what you saw me drinking was a, uh, a rosé. Was a rosé, yeah, I was going to okay. say Languedoc. And uh, of course, you know, the rosé is, grapes are, most grapes are dark. It, it simply is, the color has to do with how long you leave the skins in them. Uh, but uh, what's the best red wine? Mm -hmm. Okay, the best red wine, I would, oh my gosh, I, I'll have to go with this. I would probably go with a um, uh, Brunello, which is an Italian wine. It's a Sangiovese, it comes from the region of um, Italy, 
Uh, it's earthy, it's nice. The second only in Italy to Barolo, which is from the Piemonte region, that's the Northwest. Uh, the French, I mean, who can argue with the, you know, the great, um, the great 1855 classifications, you know, the Margot, the Saint-Vestaphe, Saint-Julien, and so forth. Those um, have to sit for a long time. Those are Cabernet. Right. Now, others, oh, can I interrupt? Uh, Do, it. Story Do it. Let's okay. hear it. Okay. Have you all seen the movie Sideways? Yes. 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 Okay. Now, well, I'm on, oh, and it's okay. You can, apparently, we're not censored. I'm on the shit list with some people because of, <laughs> I wrote a book a few years ago. Um, do tell, do tell. Okay. That, that had this reference to it. Now, if you remember in Sideways, um, the book was a bit different from the movie, but in, in the movie, uh, Paul Giamatti, is bemoaning uh, the existence of Merlot. And he wanted a, a good cab. I, I think it was Cheval Blanc. That was the one he was walking around eating with, drinking with onion rings in the movie. And <laughs> I took a little offense. He's <laughs> a great actor, but I took a little offense to the fact that he was dissing Merlot. So, um, which is a, a, you know, a grape, just like Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris, uh, the Chardonnay, uh, but he, he was dissing it because I think the script called for him to, to diss right. it. Well, I put in my book that a phrase something like this. Unlike a recent popular film uh, which denigrated the Merlot grape, the Merlot grape is in fact the, the uh, sole grape in what is perhaps the best and the most, certainly the most expensive wine on the planet, the Chateau Petrus, which is a, um, a Merlot-based grape on the, um, in, uh, it's um, the north side of the river. The south side of the Gironde River is uh, Cabernet and um, Cabernet, um, Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon. The north side of the river is uh, the, the Merlot grape. And, um, it was kind of a throwaway line. I didn't think really much about it. And then I started to get emails. You bastard. How <laughs> is this wonderful? How could you possibly like um, the, uh, the Merlot grape? And, you know, the bottles start even before they're ready to drink at $1,000. And, and so, and, and, you know, they're, they're really, you know, they're, um, they're, they're wonderful wines. Uh, so I don't know how I got off on that. I guess we were talking about the, oh, the, the French wines and so. French, French wines, yeah. yeah. My, my brother-in-law would say uh, uh, different. He's, he's privy to the Côte de Rhone in, in France for, uh, oh. for reds. Chateauneuf du Pape. Is, is yeah. My favorite wines are, uh, I think uh, French are probably the uh, Burgundy, uh, the Gervais Chambertins, the uh, uh, Côte de Nuit, Côte d'Or, Chablis is my favorite white wine. It's, you know, it's an, it's an un-oaked Chardonnay. I don't know why we have to, we Americans have to put it in these casks uh, of wine <laughs> and butter. I'm sorry. I, I, thank you for- We're, we're not very for, refined. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the uh, Onophiles. Uh, <laughs> you know, someday, someday we should talk about books if you want to get into it. Oh, yeah, that too. Listen, book, books and booze and alcohol and wine go- Exactly. Together. And I just see, wrote, that's trademarked. I just wrote down books and booze. That one I do have. So. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> you, did, you did survive the, the zaniness that is our lightning round and the 
inane or zany. I don't know how you want to put it, but uh, I, I thought it was it was great fun. And I'm sorry that was uh, uh, frankly it was a double Bombay. Uh, I, I don't think I'd go one step beyond that, but I, I think I at least uh, acquitted myself uh, safely and didn't embarrass myself too much. Although no. Giamatti and who, who did the film was that Alex? Uh, yeah, was sideways. I forget. I was trying yeah. to think of the guy's name. Alexander Payne, was that? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay. Alexander Payne. Anyway, they're, they're calling their attorneys right now, and I'm <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's raise your glass to Jeff. Yeah, but as no, I told you, I want to say something. There was something in this, in this episode that was one of my favorite parts that I want to make sure our audience pays attention to, and that's that you said that prior to your last Lincoln Rhymes, um, Lincoln Rhyme novel, and prior to your last Coulter Shaw novel, you started really working. Uh, John Pelham. John Pelham, I think you were. Okay, no, I, I, you you were talking about uh, just a couple of novels ago. You started working on character, and, and oh, I'm and, sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I thought we were going back to the character. And to me, that's both inspiring and humbling because, as we said, you have forty-five odd, fifty million novels sold, and and you're still very conscious of getting better. And that's one of the things I love about this, this world we live in with writing and reading is that like golf, you never master it. You're <laughs> always constantly trying to, to get better and to improve. And, and to me, that, that's, that's a testament to both, you know, your, you as an artist, but also it's a lesson for all of us out here who are writing our first book, our second book, our third book, or, or our first short story, whatever it is. Well, thank you, Sean. That means a lot to me. And it, it is true. I, um, uh, you know, I tell my, my students, uh, it, it's a continuum. You never uh, achieve what you want to achieve, but that's the good news. You keep striving. Right. Right. Exactly. Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining cheers, us. Jeff. Well, cheers to you all. Cheers. This is, this is great fun. Actually, we should just do this and have talk sometimes. So. We're all up for it. We are definitely there for that. <laughs> All right. I'm going to drink some water. Here we go. This is the ending for Jeffrey Devers. And it's Sean Cameron and his school plaid shirt. It's going to do a great job. Look at him. Where's the image of him on the side? God bless him. Profile. Profile image. Grade six. He was a little big for his age. I can go. (laughs) Dude, I'm so glad I'm not doing the end. And here we go in three, two, yeah. I want to thank Jeffrey Deaver for coming on the show. What a phenomenal show. Great conversation. I'm going to start over. <laughs> All righty, come on. Kiss those cheeks. You know, I had everything I was going to say, so you guys kept talking and talking and talking. <laughs> That's what oh, that was do. the voices in your head. We were quiet there for a second. No, you weren't. Dude, <laughs> if you don't hurry up. This is gonna be bad. This has gotta be. All right, take My wife's two. Gonna kill me. Hurry up. Ready? Yeah. Want to thank the great Jeffrey Deaver for coming on the show tonight and talking about his outstanding career of forty-five plus books. Thank you, Jeff. Everyone else, tune in every Monday for a great episode of the Career Reviews, guys. To you. Salud, boys. Salud.
can't drink anymore. Boom. <laughs> I can. 